Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not about golden calves or just about golden calves anymore. We're going to talk tonight about some idle chatter, some things that get in our way from hearing the voice of God. So this Lenten season, we're focusing on hearing God's voice and understanding our thesis statement that every Christian must learn how to recognize God's voice. Tonight we're going to talk about some of the things that get in our way from hearing God's voice, some of the things that take up some of that airspace, some of that chatter, some of that clatter that gets in our way. And to do that, I want to go back to Athens. I want to go to the city of Athens and uh, what Ellen was reading about in the book of Acts. Uh, there's a celebrated painter named Raphael, um, and he has a picture of or a painting of Paul uh, preaching in Athens. And uh, so the Apostle Paul is seen standing here um, on the marble steps facing the Temple of Mars, which um, before which is a statue of war. I, hopefully you can see all that. Maybe you can dil, dim some of those lights. Paul is shown here um, not as a man of um, imposing or, you know, kind of a, a mean personality like his enemies in Corinth had said, but um, he does have a commanding appearance here. Both hands are uplifted as he's addressing uh, the philosophers on the theme of Jesus and the resurrection, which they kind of separated. We're going to talk about that in a second here. But uh, they separated the idea of Jesus and they separated the idea of the resurrection. They thought it was two different ideas and it's actually just one. But in front of Paul stands one of the uh, Epicureans, listening with a rather friendly expression, not hostile curiosity like some of them. His head is kind of turned slightly to one side. Next to the Epicurean stands a cynic, and uh, we talk about all these also in Acts 17. Uh, he's leaning on his crutch. That's a cynic leaning on his crutch. His head is resting on his hands on top of the crutch. His face obviously full of anger and disgust. I don't know if you can see that, but uh, to the right of him is a stoic. His arms are folded under his coat, his head bowed. His eyes are closed in, in reflection. Um, he's actually listening to what Paul is saying, and um, he's actually understanding some of it. Um, this is um, some of the attitude or some of the uh, body language I uh, received in Japan. It took me a while to understand that uh, a Japanese person will fold their hands kind of on their chest and bow their head a little bit and close their eyes. And if you're looking at Kim Pritzloff, you would think that he was sleeping right there. So <laughs> but that's what this guy's doing. Hey, Kim, how you doing, bro? Back. <laughs> The back of the Epicureans are two young men uh, with kind of a pompous scorn look on their face. The other one has a look of disgust. Uh, to the right of the Epicurean is a man whose head is bowed down. He has the appearance of one who, again, is impressed with Paul's words. But his pride kind of, or maybe the crowd, prevents him from agreeing with him. He's the one that has his forefinger on his lips as if keeping himself silent. Now immediately to the left of Paul is a young man, outstretched hands pointing towards the apostle, engaged in some kind of heated discussion over there with those around him. Back of Paul, there's some other uh, people, one wearing a cap. At the extreme right, down at the front there, um, those are the two believers that we see. Their characters developed a little bit more in the book of Acts. I'm not going to talk about them tonight as much as I want to talk about, about the idols that were going on there. So um, one of our readings uh, tonight focuses right here at this time in history, this moment in history, right in Acts 17. If we back up a little bit, though, thank you, Jared. If we back up a little bit, um, we know that Paul was driven out of Philippi to a city called Thessalonica, um, and then he was driven out of Thessalonica and into a city called uh, Berea, and then he was driven out of Berea, and now he, here he is in Athens. And um, at Athens, at that time in history, wasn't the Athens that you might be thinking of. It's not the same power. Corinth kind of had the chief, um, you know, the Greek city, uh, Rome, obviously the center power of the world, but Athens still held onto being like the cultural center of the world. And that's, I think, why Raphael enjoyed uh, painting that so much. 
But Paul's here waiting. He's in Athens. He's waiting to hear from his boys in, in Macedonia uh, whether or not it's going to be safe for him to go back there. So Paul's killing time in Athens, literally. So he's walking around, and he's shocked, he says, at the amount and, and the level of idols that are working around in that city. So now, if you think about that for a second in context, you know, as we're reading through, you think, okay, there's a lot of idols there, and he's shocked. But Paul being shocked, um, you know, obviously Paul had seen a lot of this in his travels, the way he, where he was going around. Um, take Antioch, or Antioch, for example, Philippi. Take the city of Ephesus. When we're talking about idols, these cities are full of theirs. But Athens, it was said, even at the time, blew all of those other cities away when it came to idol worship. Um, they said it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a person. There were more idols than there were people. So Paul, going along, he first reasons in the synagogue, right? Some of the things I want us to hear now. That's, he always goes to the synagogue first, as was his, you know, the way he usually did things. He went to the synagogue and talked to the Jewish people. Now he's reasoning with them. Not so much, not so much about idols as in the golden calves and the things that we've got set up around in the city, but the Jewish people had their own idols, their own obstacles that were getting in their way from their, with their relationship with God. And I want to keep emphasizing that tonight. That's what an idol really is. It's keeping us to have that, from having that relationship with God, from getting closer to God. It's something that takes us away from God. So he would go into the, into the Jewish synagogues, and they would agree with him 100% about where he was talking about the idols, the statues that were going around in the city, blind to the own, their own idols that they were worshiping and getting in the way of their relationship with God. So now he's blown away by the, the amount of idols in, in Athens. And a couple of years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, but I shared some pictures with you that I took when I was in India. When I was in the Air Force, I had the opportunity to go to India on several occasions, sometimes spending like six weeks at a time there and being able to go around. And a lot of times I felt like I was Paul on Morris Hill. Excuse me. <laughs> See some of those pictures. So here's some of those idols that are on the sides of these buildings so they literally terrace these buildings up and that's not so you can't see so much of a close-up but every one of those little blobs is a different god we've got a couple more here they're impressive buildings and i don't know if that color is coming out you can see how beautiful these things are just just absolutely gorgeous this is out of a hotel window you can see there's several buildings around here and there's some off in the distance behind there too so a lot of, so just like these pictures, uh, these people in, Athen, in Athens uh, were accustomed to complex, complicated um, system of worship, um, a different kind of idol for everything, right? They got a different idol for weather. They got a different idol for their crops, for their health, for their wealth, for their military protection, for natural disasters. You name it, there's a statue and a god for that particular thing. So when Paul starts talking, now here's what I want you to hear. And I, again, went through the same thing in, in India and I went through the same thing in Japan. When Paul started talking about Jesus and the resurrection, they said, cool, okay, tell us more about that. We're very curious about that because we, we want to add some more gods to our collection here. And if we're missing a couple of them, we want to know about it. But Paul puts that into, uh, in a quick into that way of thinking. And Paul says, you know, he says, and you heard it read a moment ago, he said, you have an altar that says, um, to an unknown God, is how we translate it in English. We say, to an unknown God. And it's literally, um, in, in, just in case we missed it, we don't want to offend anybody. Here we are, we have, we have one for you too, even though we maybe didn't name you, and maybe you're not up on one of our, our walls or up on the side of our roof, but we, we're, we're covering you here too. And we actually have a picture of something uh, like this. These, this wasn't just in Athens. 
Uh, this is something that we unearthed in 1890, this one here. And uh, you can see the Greek on it. And a loose translation or a more accurate translation says, uh, whether to a god or goddess. Right? So that's where we say the unknown god. Right? It's, it says literally, whether to a god or goddess. Just, again, to cover our bases, make sure we got you covered. So Paul says you're already worshiping the one I'm about to tell you about and the one I have been telling you about, the one that he's reasoning with in the Jewish synagogues. But now he says, let me tell you a little bit more about him, right? See, they didn't have a, a creator God in the sense that we do, too, or the sense that we do. They didn't have a creator of the universe uh, figured it out. Like, just like um, Hindus um, in India, yes, they've got Brahma, but they believe that Brahma was created. So we don't have the creator of the universe, and that's what Paul is talking to them about in the book of Acts. Let's just look at some of that, um, Acts 17. But it's in your bulletin for you to take home. Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice you are very religious in every way. Um, you can uh, supersede that word religious as superstitious in, in many ways. For as I was walking along, I saw many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it. It said, to an unknown god, right? Or whether to a god or a goddess. This god whom you worship without knowing it, Right? is the one I've been telling you about, is the one I'm talking about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And then one of my favorite verses after that is verse 25 that says, he gives us life, breath, and everything else. That's the God I'm telling you about, Paul says. That's the God that we have to know about. And that's the God I present to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that we need to get closer to. That's the one we need to draw near to in this season of Lent in our relationship with him. That brings us back to Lent, yet another season where we take advantage of the opportunity to do just that, to grow closer to God. A time we would say, as we said last week, to repent from the things that we do that, that either don't please God or take up much of our valuable time, you know, take us away from that relationship with God. Something that we need to try to break, some of those habits we need to try to get rid of. Try to get rid of those idols in our lives. Try to get rid of that idle chatter that's taken up so much of our time and airspace. Remember that an idol is anything that takes us away from God. Anything that takes up our time that we should be spending with God. So it could be a good thing, a good thing that becomes kind of a, a God, lowercase g, a good thing that becomes a God thing in our lives. So when we do those things, when we give up those things, we call that a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline. Quick definition of a spiritual discipline is to kind of build up that muscle, right? The spiritual muscle, one's character in your own inner life, right? Building up our own character. In order to do that, we've got to have some structured workouts in our lives that train literally the mind and the soul. Some spiritual disciplines are personal, inward exercises that you practice alone, and some are, you know, relationships practiced in community, like we're doing tonight. I'd like to just take this opportunity to remind you that it takes, studies tell us, 21 days to form a habit. About 21 days to break a habit, too. I don't think it's any coincidence that that's about two sections of Lent. You know, we can do two different things, two 20-day sections of Lent. So we might give up something meaningful in our lives, right? 
something meaningful, something difficult in our lives. And then, yes, I tell my youth group, it doesn't count if we give up liver and onions for Lent. It doesn't count. Did I ever tell you one year I gave up coffee for Lent? I know. I pulled it off, yeah. And I didn't cheat on Sunday because I thought that's just going to make it harder, right? But maybe instead of giving up something for Lent, we add something in for Lent. But either way, the reason we give up those things for Lent or add something for Lent is so that we can grow in our relationship with God. Our purpose is for a relationship with God. To literally eliminate that idle chatter that's going on in our lives and taking up so much of our airtime, airspace. And I'll remind you again that God says he gives us seasons. Times and seasons. The season of Lent is all about getting more of God in our lives and recognizing his voice. We went at that at length on Sunday and we're going to continue to do that through the next few Sundays up till Easter. That we have to understand that we have to be able to recognize God's voice. How do we do that? Well, tonight we're talking about how to eliminate some things that are keeping us from hearing God's voice. So the question is, well, how are you going to do that? What are you going to eliminate from in your life to make room, you know, to add some room in your life? There's a challenge to eliminate something or add something. Maybe we're adding a Bible reading time like we talked about on Sunday so that we can easily recognize or more easily recognize his voice when he is speaking to us. And stop shooting from the hip and guessing about what God says about what we want, he wants from our lives and what he wants us to do. Let's take a look at what he says we should do. Stop guessing about it. So Lent needs to be an intentional act on your part. Lent needs to be an intentional act on your part. So when it says be transformed, we're even doing something active there. We're allowing God to transform us and not avoiding that and not resisting that. This world has a lot of distractions in it, amen? It's really easy to pull and and rely on different distractions to try to pull us away from God and pull, and we can feel it. You can feel it. I should be doing something else, you know? should be doing something else. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should be doing that. Because I want you to think about this for a quick moment. I talked about this a couple years too, but, uh, ago too, but um, why do we call this season Lent? What's that word Lent come from? It won't usually in any place else. What does it mean? The past tense of lending something? Right? No. <laughs> Lent. <laughs> Never let the heckler get the last word. Lent is from an old English word that we don't use anymore. It has to do with springtime. It has to do with springtime. It has to do with um, lengthening, like our days are getting longer. Um, it also has to do with, uh, with renewal. Things are growing back a little earlier this year than normal. Things are growing back. Springtime. So Lent we're supposed to use to renew our relationship with God. That's literally the textbook answer of it. What's Lent? Renewing our relationship with God. Sometimes I say strengthening it, but it says to renew it. Let's come back, you know, build back better kind of thing. And get rid of that that idle chatter that's in our lives and taking away our, our attention and everything. So let me wrap it up. I got three questions for you. We're going to talk about what that idle chatter is in your life that you can get rid of to help make room for your time with God. So here's how to identify that idle chatter. What do you think more of than anything else? 
You think about what do you think about the most often in your life? That's probably an idol, an idol chatter that's taking away your time with God. Maybe you want to think about it a different way. What consumes most of your thoughts? That's probably idle chatter that's taking your time away from God. If I gave everybody a three-by-five card, it might take five minutes to answer a couple of these questions. This last one's a little tough. It's a shorter question, but it's a tougher one. What do you live for? What's the first thing you think about when you get out of bed in the morning and put your feet on the floor? What's the last thing you think about when you put your head on the pillow and you go to sleep at night? Your answers will probably tell you what you worship the most in your life. You know, I showed you a video at the front here just to kind of shake you up a little bit because we can all relate to that. We could have taken all those pictures from Lambeau Field and said, yeah, guilty as charged, right? So what do we fill in our time with? When we think like that, we answer some of those questions that I just asked you, that's probably going to tell you what you worship literally in your life. And I just want to point out again, you don't have to own some carved stone, some statue of a pagan god in your living room to say, yeah, I'm an idol worshiper. No, it comes a lot simpler than that. It comes on a lot lower level than that. If you're placing any person, any project, any object on the same level or above the level or your place of God in Jesus, that's the definition of an idol. So, During this Lenten season, we put Jesus at the front of our lives. We put God at the front of our lives. Make sure that he remains the primary focus of your life. That's where that spiritual discipline comes in. That's where that mental workout comes in. Maybe something beside your nightstand. So when you get up in the morning, Jesus starts to become the first thing you think about because you have that little reminder right there. Before I put my feet on the floor, oh, yeah, that's going to be the first thing I'm thinking about. We start exercising, and I guarantee you do that for 21 days. The 22nd day, you're going to do it on your own. Primary focus of your life. Lent kind of means just do it. I just want to finish this up by saying this line, and I don't want to let you off the hook, but God is not opposed to us possessing things, having things, and doing things in our lives. But he is against those things possessing us. Does that make sense? You picking up what I'm putting down? Jared turned the lights off and you all nodded off on me? Let's stand as we continue.